Isaiah chapter 55, verses 1 to 7 will be our focus this morning. It's a beautiful chapter, but I'm afraid we don't have time to get right through to the end. So we'll focus on the first seven verses. And as you heard that Old Testament reading from Adrian earlier, you might have noticed that opening note of come. This is, this is a word from God which invites us to God himself. It's an invitation to come. I want you to think as we begin this morning about your letterbox and what comes through that letterbox at home. If you're like our house, uh, you hear the click sometimes of the postman pushing things through. Sometimes it's all fit because there's so much there. Some of those things are important. Letters that we get from family, letters from HMRC telling us that we have to pay a tax for this year. Others are not so important, are they? Some things are junk mail, spec savers, latest offer, or McDonald's coupons. Well, maybe that's important for some of us. Uh, but the junk mail and the important mail piles up together on our little table right by the front door. Maybe it's the same for you at your home. I want you to imagine for just a minute, what if in the mix of that pile of mail, you were flicking through and you realized... That's Her Majesty's royal seal. This, this is an invitation from Her Majesty herself to attend a royal banquet, a feast, and it has your name on it. It has your name on it. And you set it down and you begin to consider. I want you to have that thought in your mind as we move through the text of God's word together today. What about that royal invitation to a royal banquet. What do we do with that invitation? Hold that thought in your mind as we turn to look at God's word. Have your Bibles open there, as I asked, and please have a look at verse 1. Look at verse 1 again. Come, everyone who thirsts, come to the waters. And he who has no money, come, buy and eat. Come, buy wine and milk without money, and without price. In this text this morning, I want you to notice something. It is a direct address to you, isn't it? God is speaking to you this morning. He always speaks to us through his word, but particularly in this passage from Isaiah 55, look what he says to you. He says, come, and he says it insistently. Come, four times. Do you see it? Come, 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 come. This is an urgent invitation, and God is speaking to you, to each and every one of you seated here this morning. And so I want you to perk up your ears and listen to what he has to say. That first of the comes is a slightly different word in the original text than the others. And it's a word that the old King James translation captured this way. Ho! Now, that's not a word we use anymore. Maybe on these very streets 400 years ago, different people who were hawking their wares would try to catch your attention and look you in the eye and say, Ho there! Because they want to grab your attention. Well, that's the idea here. Even even though it's properly translated as come now in our modern versions, it it more or less tries to bring the sound of the original word into English when we use ho. It's really, hoy, God says. He's crying out. To get your attention. Because he doesn't want you to be asleep. He doesn't want you to miss this. This is urgent business that he has to do with you. And so he says, 
listen up, listen very carefully. And he looks you, as it were, in the eye in Isaiah 55, chapter 1. Why? Why is God so concerned to capture your full attention? Well, look what he's saying. It's because of this astoundingly gracious invitation that he is about to extend to you. What does he say? Come into my presence. The Almighty God, the Holy One, the One who created all things, says to you, come to me. And what does he say in verse 1? He says, come. Come and find what? Come and find water because you're thirsty. Come and find food because you're hungry. Come and find wine and milk, the kinds of drinks that you don't get if you are a normal, poor person in ancient Israel. Come and find these things. Come, says the Lord. And oh, by the way, just so you know, he goes on in verse 1, it's all free. You don't have to pay an entrance fee. There's nothing that you have to bring because I know that you are broke. Your account is empty. You have nothing you could offer me. And still I say to you, come. Do you hear this gracious invitation this morning? The Lord says, come. And who does he extend this invitation to? Look again at verse 1. Come, everyone. All of you. Everyone who thirsts. It's an invitation issued to everyone here this morning. And the Lord says this to you. He says, come to me. But more than that, it's everyone who thirsts. I wonder, did you come in this morning mindful of your spiritual need? Did you come in with a sense of a parched spiritual throat? What's the thirstiest that you've ever been in your life? I know for me what it is exactly. It was 1996, November, should have been getting cool, but it was still very hot in the Middle Eastern sun. I was finishing up a semester studying in Jerusalem, and a friend and I thought it would be a lot of fun to walk from Jerusalem to Jericho through the Wadi Kelt, which is a winding valley. And as we went, the sun beat down on us, And the water supplies that we had, that we thought were enough for the journey, were soon gone. And the rains had not yet come, and so there weren't really springs along the way. And we probably shouldn't have drunk that water anyway if there were springs. There was there was little water, and it was hot. And so we spent the first night sleeping, and then we kept on going. And by mid-morning, the second morning, we felt ourselves getting dangerously dehydrated. Maybe you've had that experience. You know you need to you need to pull it and and get out. We weren't yet to Jericho. We came up out of the valley. We hailed a bus and we got back to our place in Jerusalem and we were starting to already feel feverish and shaky. And do you know how sweet that first taste of cool water was on our tongues? Have you had that experience? You are so thirsty. Your mouth is parched and dry. Your tongue swollen. And cool water hits your mouth. That's what the Lord's saying to you. Do you know your thirst? Do you know your thirst? And do you know that you can find living water if you come near to me? Because that's what our passage is talking about, isn't it? This isn't, this isn't the cool water that I tasted there in 1996. This is spiritual water. The spirit of life 
that the Lord holds out to us. The water, the food, the wine, the milk, all of it. All of it is God's way of describing for us the spiritual feast that he sets for everyone who will come to him. It's beautiful language, isn't it? It's so evocative because it it helps us. We know what those sensations are of hunger and thirst, of the gnawing stomach. And he says, that's true of you spiritually. And I have the remedy. Come to me. To be thirsty here means that we keenly sense our spiritual lack. And I think many of you here this morning know exactly what this verse is talking about, don't you? Many of you will immediately resonate with this. You're you're a Christian. You know, you sense your sinfulness before a holy God. You know your failure every day, even this last day, even this morning, to live up to the righteous standard that God has set out for us in his word. And you are all too ready To admit your hunger and your thirst. Well, that's true of you. Do you hear this wonderful invitation, Christian brother and sister, this morning? This is the Lord God extending an invitation to you to come. Come to him and find everything. Find forgiveness for your sins in Christ. Afresh. To find again that his righteousness counts for you. Find that in his spirit, Christ gives you everything that you need. Every spiritual resource that you need for everything the Lord is going to call you to tomorrow and the day after that and the rest of this next week. The Lord says, come, I have it here for you. Come to me and drink deeply and feast. Boys and girls, I want to talk to you for just a minute too. Because this invitation is not just for adults. It's not like this is a posh restaurant down here in central London where you have to be 21 or older in order to get in. It's not like when you go to Alton Towers or Chesington and there's a sign that says you have to be this tall in order to get on the ride. And if you're this short, sorry, you can't. That's not what this is like. Instead, God says to you, he says to you too, no matter how tall you are, how old or young you are, Come to me. Come to me in the Lord Jesus Christ. And I can give you the best food and drink you will ever have. He says, come to me when you know the guilt of having disobeyed. Come to me when you feel how hard it is to live as a Christian in your school with so many of your mates around you who are not living that way. He says, come to me, I will give you my spirit and he will help you to live as you need to live as a Christian. And you will taste and see how good it is to be a Christian. It is a wonderful thing. The Lord says that to you too, children here today. Now some of you, some of you are believers here and you've you've known this spiritual hunger and thirst in the past. But if you're honest with yourself, in recent days, weeks, months, you've been drifting, drifting away, and you've been just going through the motions day by day, and you have not really paid attention to your spiritual life. You have not been drawing near to God in his word, in prayer. You've been neglecting for what seemed like good reasons at the time to come to worship with God's people on the Lord's day. You've been drifting 
Do you hear this invitation? If that's you this morning, the Lord says to you as well, come back to me. Come to me. I will gladly welcome you back in Christ. Come to me and find the forgiveness and the fullness of life that you need. Come and find the stamina that you need to keep going with what he's called you to. But there are others among us here today, and I know there are some of you here who do not consider yourselves Christians. You have not made a profession of faith in the Lord Jesus Christ. And some of you might be sitting there thinking, well, what if I don't really feel a spiritual hunger or thirst? Or, you know, it's not fine. Maybe I feel like there's something not right with my life. But come on, is it is it really that I'm a sinner who so desperately needs what this verse is holding out? I don't think I'm that thirsty. For some of you this morning, that's the case here. You might be intrigued by the things of God. You might be really interested to see how Christian community and fellowship works in the church. And might see, yeah, that's a beautiful thing. But for you personally, you're reasonably satisfied with your life. At least you think you are. And as you look around at the world and as you compare yourself to other people who are worse than you, you don't think that you are all that sinful in need of the kind of thing that the Lord is calling you to this morning because you don't feel the weight of your sin as a burden, as a spiritual hunger or thirst. If that's you, then this is my prayer for you this morning as you listen to the rest of this text because the Lord the Lord needs to do two things for you this morning, if that's you. He needs to first persuade you that you are more sinful than you know or than you ever thought. But he also wants to persuade you That Jesus Christ is a greater savior for sinners than you ever thought possible. And his free invitation of grace to come to him in Christ is actually for you too. And that's my prayer that the Lord would persuade you of that this morning. Let's look at verse 2. Because after that wonderful, gracious invitation of verse 1, we shift gears slightly. And there's a sharp question. Look at verse 2. Why do you spend your money for that which is not bread? And your labor for that which does not satisfy. Listen diligently to me and eat what is good and delight yourselves in rich food. Don't you realize, God asks, that your entire life, all of your work, all of your efforts to lead a good life, even your efforts to work on those those bad habits, those shortcomings that you know you have, that all of that... It's like spending your hard-earned money, all of it, for dust, and then tasting that dust, rather than eating the true living bread that the Lord God offers you. Or think of it this way. It's like working and saving hard for years and years to get that perfect flat, or to get that car, or working so hard to get that qualification that you've been after for so many years, to take that holiday that you thought would really reset and give you refreshment and rest, and getting that thing, achieving that thing, only to realize it doesn't really satisfy. It's not bread that satisfies. And you're left with a powerful feeling that actually, actually what's going on in your heart is that you know when you reflect That there's a devouring, addictive hunger and thirst 
for things that are not God, and in fact, things that you are ashamed of, things that you know are wrong, things that do not fulfill you and go against God's law, and that even when you engage in those things, that sense of momentary contentment, of blissful forgetting, doesn't last because it issues ultimately in regret, gnawing regret, and you don't know how to break that cycle. Oh, if that's you this morning, please open your ears. Listen to what God Almighty is saying to you. He says, you there, listen to me. Come, come to me, and my free grace in Christ can break your life open can change you from within, can transform you, can give you everything that you need. Listen diligently to me and come and find what is truly satisfying. Does that stir up your desire this morning? Christian or non-Christian alike, I hope it does. I hope the Holy Spirit is opening up your heart to be stirred by this gracious invitation. What a prospect of utter delight and feasting in God's presence. And satisfaction that he holds out to us. Because what's he really offering? He's offering himself to us. The God of all creation. The holy God. Three in one. Father, Son, and Spirit says to you. Come and I will give you myself. Full communion with me. Come to me. How is that possible? How is that possible? That a holy God can invite sinners To come and enjoy that in his presence. Well, we're about to see what makes that possible. And in Isaiah's terms, it's all possible because of one figure that he calls the servant. But before we get on to that, before we get on to that, look at verse 3. I just want you to catch the urgency here. And forgive me, I, I don't mean... I don't mean to press, except to press home to you the urgency that is on the page in this passage of Scripture. These are urgent words from your God. He says in verse 3, Incline your ear, oh, lean towards me. Don't go away from me. Incline your ear to me and come to me. Hear, why? So that your soul may live. This is a matter of spiritual life. And spiritual death. And so the Lord issues a gracious invitation to you this morning. And he says, come. Let's continue in verse 3. Because now we begin to see how this is possible. In the second half of verse 3. Let's read that together. And I will make with you, the Lord says, an everlasting covenant. My steadfast, sure love for David. I will make with you an everlasting covenant. Here in verse, the latter half of verse 3 on through verse 5, we get our glimpse into how it is possible that the holy, almighty God can invite sinful men and women and children into his presence. How he can, being perfect in all his ways, countenance the thought of us joining him around his table. The answer lies in a gracious covenant that he makes. His gracious invitation is possible because of a gracious covenant that he will make. Do you see it there in verse 3? I will make, says the Lord. This is the Lord's doing. It's not your initiative that you decide, I'd like to get closer to God now. God says to you, and he comes to you and says, I will make, I will do this. I will make an everlasting covenant. A covenant that is a bond that brings us 
together in the relationship with our God. A bond that's both relational and legal because it's based on promises he made that he will not break. A bond that cannot ever be broken. It's everlasting. Do you see that? And God looks at you again this morning and he says, I will make this everlasting covenant with you. Verse 3. You, plural. He's speaking to you. What is this everlasting covenant bond like? Well, it's characterized in verse 3 at the very end as my steadfast love for David. Earlier, much earlier before the time of Isaiah, King David lived and reigned in Israel. And in 2 Samuel chapter 7, we're told of a wonderful covenant promise God made to David. And as he made the promise, he called David his servant. My servant David. And he promised to David that David would always have a descendant seated and ruling on the throne. God made a a unilateral, gracious promise that that would be the case. Now by the time we get to Isaiah's time, David's descendants haven't done so well. They are sinful kings. They have messed things up. And one of them, Hezekiah, in chapter 37, is ill and his city, Jerusalem, is surrounded by the Assyrian army. They're about to be destroyed, wiped away. And God says in chapter 37 of Isaiah, verse 35, he says, for I will defend this city and save it. Why? For my own sake and for the sake of my servant, David. And as Isaiah rolls on in chapters 41, 42, and 43, this language of servant becomes more and more intriguing because David was a servant king, but now, now Isaiah tells us there's going to be a new servant, a greater servant, a greater than David's servant, one who is like Israel, but is greater than all of Israel, represents Israel, a servant who is going to be set, God says in Isaiah 43, 10, as a witness. This servant will be a witness To bring back rebellious Israel and to bless all the nations, all the Gentile nations as well. And this opens up a new window on the redemptive plan of God in Isaiah. That God will send a servant who stands as a witness to bring in people from all nations and tongues and ethnicities and who saves them. How's that going to happen? Well, it's Isaiah 53, which some of you know very well, and comes just two chapters before our text this morning, where we get the final window into how this happens. Isaiah 53.5 tells us this servant, witness, he is going to suffer even though he doesn't deserve it. Let me read you those words from Isaiah 53.5. You might like to turn back just a page. Isaiah 53.5, but he was pierced for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. Upon him was the chastisement that brought us peace. And with his wounds, we are healed. Beautiful. Beautiful. He takes what he doesn't deserve, but we did. And he gives us what we don't deserve because he has earned it for us. It goes on in verse 12 of Isaiah 53. Because he poured out his soul to death and was numbered among the transgressors. Yet he bore the sin of many and makes intercession for the transgressors. This is how it works. This is how, when we come to Isaiah 55, the everlasting covenant is made and is made possible. Because look at what verse 4 says. Verse 4 says, Behold, 
It's another call. God says, look, behold, I have made him a witness to the peoples, a leader and a commander for the peoples. Verse 5, hold, you shall call a nation that you do not know, and a nation that did not know you shall run to you because of the Lord your God and of the Holy One of Israel, for he has glorified you. It's the servant who has suffered and become a witness that the Lord asks us in verses 3 and 4 to behold. Behold him. John Calvin puts it this way as he looks at this verse in our passage. He says, by calling him a witness, he means that the covenant into which he entered, that is God entered, shall be ratified and confirmed in Christ. There is a weighty meaning in this word witness, for he clearly shows that his covenant shall be proved in Christ, by whom the truth of God is not false. Christ will testify that God is not false. How can we trust God and take him at his word when he says to us and we know our sinful hearts and he says, come to me? How can we trust him that that's a good faith invitation that we really can accept and take him up on his offer? It's because we look at Christ, the suffering servant who bore our sin and gives us his righteousness. Christ is the witness. He's the seal. He's the ratifier, the confirmer of God's promise. Behold, says verse 4, look at him. Look at Christ. Behold, my servant pierced for your transgressions. Behold, Jesus Christ, a guarantee that I am serious. That if you come to me, I will never turn you away. Behold him, all peoples, and come to me. The gracious invitation of verses 1 and 2 and the beginning of 3 is a beautiful invitation that's made possible by the gracious covenant that God makes with us in Jesus Christ, his suffering servant son. And so he says, come. And even as we come, he says, behold, behold, Jesus Christ, the witness of the covenant. Come, behold, this is a passage, it's a passage that drips, doesn't it just drip with free grace? You think it's too good to be true. There's such a freedom to this offer. Come, Thomas Chalmers, one of our own in the history of the free Church of Scotland, put it this way. He said of free grace like this, the freer, the better, the freer, the more sanctifying. This is free grace wonderfully offered and it draws us it stirs our hearts so that we as sinners can come into the presence of our god and it continues to be the grace that we need as christians to draw us daily and to drive us in our growth in the christian life and in holiness come and behold as you come verse six describes the proper response then that we ought to have to this invitation and to that vision of the suffering servant offered for us as a witness. It says this, Seek the Lord while he may be found. Call upon him while he is near. Do you hear? The urgency continues. It continues, doesn't it? Seek, says the Lord. It's another command. It's another, it's, it's another address directly to you. Seek. Don't ignore me. Look for me. Chase after me. Run to me. Don't sit there on your hands. I've given you an invitation. 
And the right response is to seek me. Go looking for the Lord. Seek while he may be found, goes on. While he is near. The urgency continues to press. It doesn't let up through this chapter. It's an urgent invitation, an urgent call. Don't delay. Don't put this off. Don't think that I'll consider this and I'll spend another week and another month. And another, I'll, you know, maybe I'll think about it in the, f- don't put it off, says the Lord. Seek me now while I may be found. If you are not a Christian, that's important for you to hear. Because this might be the day when you could turn to the Lord and find him to be gracious. And if you don't today, you don't know what your life holds in store for you, do you? Seek him now. Seek him now while he may be found. If you are already a Christian and you've been one of those drifting or doubting, the Lord says this to you as well. He says, he says, my child, do it now. Turn to me now. Don't try to put yourself back together. Don't try to clean yourself up. Come to me now. Seek me now. And then in verse 7, we see the need, don't we, for repentance, which is why this is meant to be another series of passages carrying on from what Harrison has taken us through over the last months in thinking about repentance. And here it comes to the fore. Look at verse 7. Let the wicked forsake his way and the unrighteous man his thoughts. Let him return to the Lord that he may have compassion on him and to our God, for he will abundantly pardon The Lord says, you've heard my gracious invitation. You've seen my gracious covenant and that crucified Savior that I offer to you. Now what do you do? You turn away from your sin and you turn toward me. That's what repentance is. It's turning away from our sin and turning towards our God. Let him return to the Lord. Let the wicked forsake do you hear that word forsake? Do you feel the weight of what that means then for you? It means to turn away from, to abandon, to run the other direction from the ways of life that you have been accustomed to, your daily habits that are not pleasing to the Lord. Turn and return to the Lord. Turn from what our ways, turn from what our thoughts Verse 7 says, even our, not just our actions, not just the words with which we sin, but even our thoughts, the intentions, the plans that we have, even, even the way that we, we entertain just for a split second, those desires and attitudes that we know are displeasing to the Lord. Turn away from those, verse 7 says. And turn back to the Lord. Why? Verse 7. So that he may have compassion on you. This is the nature of our God. He is, Calvin says, infinitely compassionate. And infinitely ready to receive sinners with compassion. When they come to him in faith and repentance. On what basis? Verse 7. For he will abundantly pardon you. God promises to embrace repentant sinners in this way. So what have we heard from God this morning? We've heard a gracious invitation grounded in a gracious covenant that holds out to us the beautiful prospect of a gracious pardon. And each of those has been accompanied by a direct address from God to you. He says first, come. And then he says, behold Christ. 
And then he says, seek me, seek me now. As we begin to close, we've got to apply all of this to ourselves this morning. This is a beautiful invitation, but we cannot, we cannot leave that invitation, that royal invitation, just sitting there next to the front door or on a table in the hallway or in a pile of junk mail next to the microwave. We can't just leave the invitation there. We've got to respond. So what does it look like for us to respond this morning? Well, verse 5, verse 5 reminds us who it is that's speaking to us, who this God is. He is the Holy One of Israel. And that means without a true sense of sorrow, of grief, of repentance for our sin, for my sin, I can never really embrace this invitation properly. It's not even going to strike me as a sweet offer of free grace as it ought to. And maybe that's true for you this morning. Thomas Watson, another, another of the oldies but goodies, said this. He said, when there's no sight of sin, there can be no repentance. Let me say that again. When there is no sight of sin, there can be no repentance. And Watson goes on to define repentance as the agony of soul for sin. Is that what goes on inside of you when you consider yourself in relation to God? Do you have a right view of your sin this morning? Do you understand that God is holy? Do you know what it means to say that God is morally perfect, without fault, absolutely, beautifully, gloriously holy? And to quake before that because you know your sin. Our catechism tells us this. It says, repentance is a saving grace. It's a re- Repentance unto life is a saving grace whereby a sinner, out of a true sense of his or her sin, turns from it with grief and hatred unto God. That's the kind of repentance we need. And we need God to give that to us as a gift, don't we? And he's offering it. That's exactly what he's offering to you this morning. Repentance unto life. The grief and hatred for your sin. How do we, how do you make this way of life, this, this repentance, a way of life for us? I ask you if you're a Christian here this morning. Yes, we need to repent when we are converted. There must be a point in your life of repentance and faith where you turn from your sin and you turn to God and you profess, I am a sinner. And I have nothing to offer you, Lord. And I trust completely in the merits of my Lord Jesus Christ. And I throw myself upon you for pardon for my sin. That has to happen for each of us. But that's not the end of repentance. Repentance needs to be a way of life. I wonder how that can become a pattern for us. You've probably heard this before, maybe even from me. Forgive me if you have. But Martin Luther was once asked by his barber, You can imagine him kind of sitting there and getting a shave and a little bit of a snip and a clean. And his barber's name was Peter. And Peter says, Martin, I'm struggling. I I love the Lord, but I'm struggling to pray. Teach me how to pray. Help me know how to pray. So Martin says, Peter, I'll help you. And he goes home and he writes a little pamphlet, a simple way to pray. And it's addressed to Peter, the barber. And as part of that advice, part of that advice, he says, here's a thought. What if every morning... As you begin your day with the Lord and you open his word, you, you run through the Ten Commandments 
Or maybe you just pick one of those commandments, but you remember God's law and his holiness right at the beginning of the day, and then you use that as a mirror to show you yourself as a sinner who needs to be repentant. What if we started every day that way? What would that look like? Let's just try it on very briefly as we close here. What if we just take one commandment, the 10th commandment, one that we don't go to perhaps all that often? What's the 10th commandment? We'll go to our catechism again for help here. Three little questions. Tenth commandment is, you shall not covet your neighbor's house, shall not covet your neighbor's wife, or his manservant, his maidservant, his ox, his donkey, or anything that belongs to your neighbor. You shall not covet. What is covet? Boys and girls, you know this, don't you, as well. To covet something is to want something that doesn't belong to me. To desire something that somebody else has that isn't rightly mine. Well, our, our catechism actually helps us even more than that. Listen to this. It says this, what what are the duties that God requires of us in the 10th commandment? The duties required in the 10th commandment are such a, oh, listen to this. It's hard, but listen, such a full contentment with our own condition and such a charitable frame of the whole soul toward my neighbor as that with all our inward motions and affections, as we think about our neighbor, tend that they tend unto and further all the good which is his. Perfectly content with what I have and perfectly charitable in my mindset toward my neighbor. That's what God's law requires. To keep God's law means that I need to be perfectly content perfectly filled with and driven by an others-centered love and concern for my neighbor. And if I'm not doing those things, guess what? I'm a sinner and I'm deserving of God's wrath and judgment and I need to repent. One more question, not just the duties required. What are the sins forbidden in the 10th commandment? The sins forbidden in the 10th commandment are discontentment with our own estate envying and grieving at the good of our neighbor, together with all inordinate emotions and affections to anything that is his. In order not to be guilty of breaking God's holy law, then I must not ever be discontent or unsatisfied with my life, my possessions, my body, my job, my health, my relationships, my house, my flat, my car, anything. Or else I've sinned and I'm worthy of God's judgment and I need to repent. How are we doing so far? Is there anybody left in here who feels the need not to repent? But now we go back to our text and the Lord says to us, come, come to me, behold your savior on the cross. Know your sin, but oh, know your Savior. Look at your sin, look at your Savior, and come to me with that humble, contrite posture of repentance, knowing that you are utterly broke. You have no money, but I'm still offering you the best I have. Come to me in the Lord Jesus Christ. That's what the Lord says this morning. Take that royal invitation. Open it up. Don't let it sit there. RSVP. Turn to the Lord and come. Let's pray. Our gracious and compassionate 
and merciful God, we cast ourselves down before you now, knowing how sinful and hard-hearted and stubborn we are, and we ask that you would show us this grace that you have been speaking of us to this morning. Do your gracious work in our hearts by your Holy Spirit that we might come to you and delight in Jesus Christ and all that you offer to us in him. And we pray it in his name and for his glory. Amen.